Warning! This episode of The Secret Cinema contains discussions of disturbing and adult content. So, heads up! What happened? Why, at the age of 32, was this smooth-voiced girl from Downey, California, who led a raucous nation smoothly into the 70s, found dead in her parents' home? Let's go back. Back to Southern California, where Karen and Richard grew up back to the home in Downey where their parents still live today. Secret Cinema, the podcast that goes deeper into movies that usually get left in the shadows. I'm Paolo Carone, my co-host is Carrie Chafee, and today we're joined by Jeff Cheney to discuss a very special Secret Cinema short film triple feature, Cecilia Condit's 1983 film Possibly in Michigan, Mary Hestan's 1989 film He Was Once, and most importantly, Todd Haynes' 1987 film Superstar, The Karen Carpenter Story. All three of these are obscure and rarely screened, and actually it's illegal to publicly screen Superstar, but thanks to the internet, they all are a Google search away. I strongly, strongly encourage you to pause the episode, go to YouTube and Vimeo, watch these films right now. Possibly in Michigan and He Was Once are each under 15 minutes, and Superstar is 45 minutes. They're fantastic movies and it'll add a lot to the discussion, but if you don't have that option or just don't care... Here's Carrie with the plot summaries. In Possibly in Michigan, two women are stalked by a masked cannibal while exploring their neighborhood. In He Was Once, Davy sees a bear on his way home. But when his father refuses to believe him, he learns a dark truth about his family. And lastly, in Superstar, we follow Karen Carpenter as she learns that fame comes with a price. Our first film, possibly in Michigan, is probably the most experimental of the three, due in large part to the dialogue being spoke-sung over a rudimentary but effective electronic backbeat. In the following clip, you'll hear the film's protagonists having a conversation about perfume in that speak-sing style, and it should give you a pretty strong idea of the film's tone. Here's that clip! This one here smells great. Which one? Mmm. Smells like mother's crazy sister Kate. Oh, you think so? Yeah, I do. It smells so good. She couldn't have been that crazy. I don't think so. Oh, you don't think so, huh? No. Well, she put her poodle one time in a microwave oven. To eat it? Yeah. To eat it? Oh, no. No, 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 silly. To dry it. No, no, no. But it exploded. And they were both found dead. She must have been out of her head. Here it is. There's my favorite person. 
door Okay Okay Bye-bye 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 Our second film, He Was Once, is fairly straightforward, save for a bit of symbolism all three of us got stuck on. But what really makes it noteworthy is the production design, which attempts to recreate the look and feel of Davy and Goliath claymation entirely in live action. So, during this clip, in which Davy's father accuses him of lying, try to remember that all of the actors on screen have taken a trip to the uncanny valley. Here's that clip. Now, did you see a bear today? Yes. Davy, I'm going to have to spank you if you don't tell me the truth. I am, Dad. I swear I saw the bear. I don't know why Shirley said the bear wasn't there. It was there. I saw it. Hmm. You saw the bear, didn't you, Goliath? Mm hmm. Mommy, Davy's talking to the dog again. Oh, Davy, I thought you had finally outgrown that. That's what I thought. Talking dogs and dancing bears. Well, you're too old to be telling those kinds of stories. Davy. Go and get my belt. John! No, Elaine. He's got to start learning to tell the truth. I am telling the truth, Dad. I saw the bear. Go and get the belt, son. And finally, our third film, Superstar, is very dense, switching back and forth between fiction and documentary to more fully explore the nature of anorexia. In this clip from one of the fictional sections, Karen has a conversation with her mother that subtly depicts the early psychological stages of an eating disorder. Listen to the music that comes in at the very end when Richard mentions the smorgasbord, and consider the point of view that Todd Haynes is trying to force on you. I'm going to let this clip transition into our discussion, so see you on the other side, and here's that clip. Now, where was I? Waist, 28... Thighs, 20. Why do you need thighs? For the pantsuit, the hip hugger. I thought we decided against the hip hugger. The pantsuit's adorable. You can't just wear long dresses, Karen. I don't care what you read about the midi or the maxi. I will not wear that hip hugger thing, Mother. It makes me look really fat. Oh, fat. I swear, ever since that stupid columnist called you party or something. They called me chubby. Whatever, chubby. You have just been so fanatical about your weight. I mean, that thing really went to your head. Oh, it did not. I just want to start watching what I eat. Karen, you lost plenty of weight on that Stillman diet, and you look just fine now, all right? Now, that's all I want to hear on the subject. You just concentrate on your career. That's what I am doing, but you got to look good in my career. Karen! Karen, you'll never guess. Jack's taking us out for a huge celebration dinner in your honor. It's smorgasbord at Scandia. Oh, my! Well, what do you say to that? Today, uh, we have a new guest. Uh, would you please introduce yourself, new guest? Hello, my name is uh, Jeffrey Cheney. Jeffrey! Jeffrey. That's my professional title. I'm Jeff Cheney. Glad to have you. I'm glad to be here. And what a night. What a, what a series of movies. Oh, what a night. like a triptych of nonsense. That's a, a, an excellent way to describe it. That should triptych be the title of, of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> I think our guest host should be allowed to 
name the episode. All right, triptych of nonsense it is. Because uh, <laughs> possibly in Michigan slash Superstar, the Karen Carpenter story slash she was once is kind of too long. So yeah. triptych it is. Uh, but okay, well today, originally this was just going to be a double feature of Superstar, the Karen Carpenter story, and he was once. Both films that are heavily influenced by... Todd Haynes' participation in them. Todd Haynes directed Superstar and just produced and worked on He Was Once. But yesterday I discovered this short film called Possibly in Michigan. Uh, I use Letterboxd and a lot of the people on there uh, have been just raving about it. So I had to check it out. And it was uh, hard to bring down. Yeah. It was gorgeous. Like, that was a, like there are a few movies that I, I watched and I'm like, that was kind of perfect. Like, that did exactly what it was intending to do. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that kind of slowly accomplished the vibe that they were, like, setting up. It's so hard to describe, though, because possibly in Michigan is about two women who go to the mall? It's and- this, these women who are being followed by, like, a cannibal in a mask. Uh, at the mall. But and they're not they're, really worried about it. No. And they're obsessed with perfume was another like <laughs> weird weird point of the movie that they made very explicit in like the introduction. Yeah. They even sing a song about it. They sing yeah. a song about perfume. <laughs> like, like the whole thing is just one long ass music video. Yeah. <laughs> they kind of have like the sing-songy dialogue that's like half just like strange 80s synth uh, songs. Is my favorite smell. It's very. It's like Laurie Anderson. It's like it's a lot like I don't know uh, if you've ever heard "Oh Superman" by Laurie Anderson. It's like if a whole movie's dialogue was in the style of that. It's like that alien and weird. And the man in the mask. I, I, I don't know how to describe the mask. It's just a really creepy mask. But he's always standing behind the women, so it'll show one. And he'll be behind it, and he'll cut to the, the reaction shot from the other one, and he'll be behind her in the reaction shot, too. Uh, but They go up a lot of escalators. There's yeah. a lot of escalators. There's a lot of, like, B-reel of a mall. Yeah. That's a great. A lot of B-reel. My, <laughs> my theory is that one of those women is friends with a mall security guard because they had full access to that mall, and nobody was in it. Like, nobody was in that mall. Yeah. And it was kind of the middle of the day, where they lit it like it was the middle of the day, which... Yeah. Good on them. I mean, it, I think it was filmed in Ohio, so it's quite possible that <laughs> yeah. nobody was there. <laughs> yeah, the government. The government paid for this. The National Endowment of the Arts funded possibly Thanks, Michigan. Thanks, government. And we couldn't be like, more grateful. This, this, is why, this is unfortunately why like Rush Limbaugh and assholes like him are like, we need to defund the NEA. Yeah. But like... Con- like on the other side of that, like this is the reason why we need to give the NEA money. <laughs> yeah. Like, because this is like this is what makes America great. I want to see more of this. Like, I I would love because I work on a lot of I end up working on a lot of student films out in Los Angeles, I bet. and a lot of the the projects that I work on, they're not as daring and weird as this like this kind of stuff is. Because like I'm pretty sure Superstar was like a student film. Like that was I thought those were yeah, like college. graduates, like film thesis or something. Or something. Like that, yeah. yeah. But, like, a lot of, like, and I'm sure he was once is probably about the same level of of creation. But, like, that's the kind of, like, weird, daring, avant-garde nonsense that you don't really see out yeah. of film students now. Because yeah. everyone's trying to, like, sell something. And they're not yeah. trying to, like, they're make like, a weird-ass statement. I made this short film so I can direct the next Marvel movie. Right? Yep. It's just boring. It's pretty much the exact mistake I made in college. Just 
being like, I'm just going to make crazy stuff because <laughs> like, I just have so many people at my disposal and now I can't get a job anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess we should kind of talk about why possibly Michigan is so weird because we've, we've mostly just like spoken in awe of it so far. Uh, well, it begins with the one woman walking through this mall and she discovers the other woman and they talk about the perfume. But there's this narration where she's like, uh, some or I don't know if it's one of them or just like another person. Like a third, I think it's like a third voice that's yeah. just like telling their story but, as they're like wandering through this mall. There's something about how Sharon, the main woman, attracts violence, but she acts like she doesn't know that she attracts violence. And then her friend Janice also attracts violence. I did not keep track of it. It was really tough to follow. Okay, and then also, like, the guy was t- attracted to violence, which is why he was stalking them, was another part. Like, I thought that happened yeah. as well. Yeah. Which is, like... And there's, the, like, uh, there's also a part of the, the short film where they're dancing with people who are wearing masks, but it's not the masks of the cannibal guy. But they did say that... Uh, later that, like, he had worn so many masks that he didn't know who he was anymore, so I think it was all supposed to be him. Oh, okay. I think that's, like, the thing that they were trying to do, but also that's deeply confusing. Yeah. So what they mean with that. Well, in the whole movie, it looks like it's shot on whatever the digital camera that was available in 1983 was, because it has this... It has this very digital, blurry look to it. Like, Uh, shitty home movie kind of quality. Yeah, but it also, at times, it goes meta and it, like, films a TV or a screen showing the film in its shitty quality. Yeah. Yeah. And unlike Superstar, and he was once, we didn't really get a chance to watch this one twice, <laughs> so yeah. we kind of lost to explain it. Uh, but it just, it was mostly just kind of a primer to get us in the right headspace for the other two movies. So, yeah, I would highly recommend it. Anyone who is interested in Superstar, and he was once, should hunt down possibly in Michigan for sure. Is it on YouTube? It's on Vimeo. That's the only place I could find it in full. But um, yeah, I really like, I don't know. It kind of, I need to watch it again. I really liked it a lot, but I'm definitely at a loss for words. I really, I really liked the fadeaway in Possibly in Michigan where the woman is laying down and then all of a sudden it fades in and she becomes like this skull monster. Yeah, there's like corpses. It's like mummified corpses and they just kind of like, like, make it look like she is turning into it. And it's a re- it's definitely, like, a real mummified corpse. I don't know if it's a photograph or, like, stock footage or what, but it's it's definitely a real, <laughs> it's a real dried-up corpse. The <laughs> teeth, you can tell, just they're, yeah. like, real teeth. Ugh, it's, but it's really cool. It's, like, it's, and the, the kind of the, one of the recurring themes that we'll get into with all these movies is the way in which they take kind of portrayals of the suburbs to, like, the most horrifying degree that they could possibly take it to. Like, if we had to add, but if we had, like, to add another movie, like, a more, slightly more mainstream movie to this, like, evening of weird suburbia, like, it would definitely be something like Blue Velvet. Yeah. Like, that would be the thing to watch after all of this and be like, suburbs ruin humans. <laughs> yeah. That's what we learned. And then we would listen to Arcade Fire and, <laughs> and call it a night. Yeah, it would be beautiful. <laughs> With our PBR. Oh, yeah. It's a white night. We're so fucking <laughs> hip, bro. Yeah, this is a pizza and beer recording. Yes. <laughs> We're full. Full of food. It's beautiful. But yeah, the thing that uh, that kind of kept, like, that was just the weirdest part about Possibly in Michigan, kind of the thing that, like, got me a little bit, 
is like the story that they tell about the woman who sticks her poodle in the microwave. Oh yeah. To, dr- like, to dry it off. To eat it. Just kidding. It was to dry it off, but it still exploded. <laughs> they and both then, exploded. And then it both exploded. <laughs> but then, like, they cut back later to footage of like this old woman playing with her dog, like with a poodle. Yeah. Which was like super like a weird thing that like just I don't know like hit me in a way that I was like. I don't feel good about what this is. Like, what are we, what are we watching? Well, and even when she says, like, she put the poodle in the microwave and it cuts that shot of that raw chicken just being, like, cut into pieces. Just, like, you're like, oh, Yeah, everything is just grimy and gross. And, uh, and the, the two main characters are these, like, pretty brunette women and the antagonist is just, like, a guy in a mask. So nobody, those people don't really look all that weird, but... They just grime up every little detail around them, and the, even like when they kill the cannibal and like cut up, cut him into pieces. His bones are dirty and brown, and just like everything looks so mucky and gritty. I really love that. Yeah, it was. Really I loved the two women too, right? and I loved their sing song talking to each other. It was really, it was like off-putting, but also like you paid attention to it. Yeah. Like, because if, I don't think that if that happened, I would have been as, like, involved. I wouldn't have, like, paid attention as much because it was so, like, so kind of commonplace where I'm talking about stuffing a dog into a microwave. <laughs> but, like, it was just kind of such, like, the words were so pedestrian about all of the rest of it that I think that having it in the sing-songy way the whole time kind of gave you... It made it, it made it more playful when it could have been really creepy really weird, and serious. yeah. And that the music, too, is really, it's really good music, but it's that 80s um, keyboard, like, you can tell, like, someone turned on the automatic setting on a keyboard, and then while it was playing the filler beats, they're just, like, hitting keys every once in a while, (laughs) and it just, like, I don't know, it really adds a lot. It's one of those where what is being described is horrifying, and you feel horrified while watching it but it's it somehow creates that feeling through a lot of innocuous imagery or like things that could be very easily dismissed in a more normal context like that footage of the woman running away that you kind of see like just the back of some person running down the street or like I said the poodle or the, the chicken but it's just when they decide to place it in the footage and just how like strange like how estranged from reality it is once you start it, you feel like you've been pulled down like a very dark hole. <laughs> You're going to be trapped there for the next ten minutes. It is kind of just a really great collage of like innocuous, Im- like otherwise innocuous images that you're like, oh, if you just saw someone like shredding chicken, you wouldn't have the same kind of like terrible feeling about it. You'd be like, oh, this is, I don't know what this is about. Yeah. But like in that context and after like the story and just the whole business that, that is that movie, like it's... <laughs> becomes kind of weird and terrifying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a really great experimental edit. I also yeah. like that it starts with the two women in the mall doing very feminine things, smelling perfume, seeing each other, going up and down escalators, and it ends with them killing that cannibal guy and throwing him in the trash and, you know, <laughs> being in, in the house saying, like, you know, watching yeah. the garbage man take, <laughs> take the body away. It's pretty nice. Female power. Yeah. But it's not really filmed in a way that, like, it makes it empowering. No. It's made by women. No, definitely It's just definitely, like, absolutely empowering. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like a side effect. A rapist. 
Because he's like, I'm gonna, like, cut up your body. And oh, yeah. He's, he says what? <laughs> choice A, I'll cut up your arms. Choice B, I'll cut off your legs. Yeah. <laughs> no, he says, um, either you let me eat you, or I'm going to cut off your limbs one by one oh, yeah. and eat them. And then he do something, that's like, something like that. But right. all, Two very bad choices. But all sing. Sing song. Yeah. Uh, first choice is I'll eat you. The second choice is I'll eat your lips. Yeah, it feels, like it feels, I mean, this is definitely I me stealing that soundtrack. Yeah. Just for my life, it was so perfectly weird. This is me really stealing someone else's phrase, but the whole movie feels like a series of last known photos. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. It just, that's, it, yeah, it seems like, even though you're watching a clearly fiction film and I'm sure everyone involved is still alive. It feels like as soon as the movie cuts away, they're dead. <laughs> Just like there's, yeah, there is definitely an inherent like danger that you feel for the characters. We're like, God, nobody, nobody made it out of this shitty weird movie. Yeah, it almost. It, I guess it feels like a VHS tape that you would. You're like digging a foundation for a house, and you find it like, wrapped in a rag in the mud, and you watch it. That's like really what it feels like. Like Kamiko. Yeah, it's like <laughs> when she finds uh, Fargo, and she's like, "Oh my god, this movie holds a secret to treasure." Yeah, pretty much, but a really bad treasure. Yeah, not good treasure. This movie holds a secret. The treasure of 1980s Ohio malls. Yeah. Or which Nothing perfume scent to buy? All right, well, let's push on to He Was Once, because we have a little bit more we can say there's about a, that. There's more subject matter in that. There's a more clear-cut through line and symbolism, even though there's still, like, some ambiguous stuff that I can't fully wrap my head around. But, um, yeah, He Was Once is directed by Mary Hestand, which we looked up, and Carrie and I, each of us, have more IMDb credits than Mary Hestand does. She has two directing credits... One writing credit and one acting credit. I can't really find much about her career or how she met up with Todd Haynes, but um, she made this one-off piece, and it's definitely a Davy and Goliath parody. If you haven't seen Davy and Goliath, it's basically just claim. It's like a claymation kids thing that would teach religious morals, right? Yeah, yeah it's uh, it's. If you've also seen Moral Oral, it's basically it's, like... Yeah, Moral Oral is definitely a spoof of Davy and Goliath. Also, if you, have, if you haven't seen Davy and Goliath, like, go to, like, culture school. Yeah. I don't know where <laughs> you can find that, but, like... Yeah, it's kind of like when people don't know who Gumby is. Right, you're like... I just want to, like, send you to a place where people learn pop culture. I'm sure, like, there are... I could teach a class on it at this point, but, like, it's one of those things where you're like, you just need to... These are the things you need to know to yeah. communicate with other humans. If you don't know what... Essential things by Jeff Cheney. <laughs> if you don't know what I don't know Davey means, then what? <laughs> Move to a different country. Get out! <laughs> you're done. This is America. You don't get it? You get it? <laughs> No, but that movie Man, was... Man, we're really, we're really uh, just alienating our audience, oh, yeah. I think. This is, <laughs> is going to be a, a mess. <laughs> Whatever. No, but I, like, I, I mean, beyond that, I think that, like, it's it's a very... It's the, the obvious... Like, it's styled, like, the super, like, stop-motion claymation stuff from, like, the 70s and the... Yeah, it has this... This movie, he was once has this really, really strong aesthetic to it. And all of these movies have, like, very very noteworthy aesthetics, and we, we talked about how they're all really creepy, but He Was Once's aesthetic is the least creepy because it's going so far to imitate, with 
live human actors claymation. And so you do have like the cheap paper sets and like trees clearly made of crumpled paper that just are like dipped in paint. And uh, you mentioned the house that the chimneys clearly just has cigarettes. Smoke like someone just put it. a cigarette behind like a cut out of a house. <laughs> you're like, that's good enough. And uh, and like all the uh, all the children are played by adults, but the they have like wigs made of clay and ears with like the giant clay ears over their ears, and their voices have been dubbed by. It sounds like all the boys have their voices dubbed by women, mm-hmm. uh, and so that they sound like prepubescent boys. And then the adults are played by children. It would dubbed by like very deep voiced adults for like maximum incongruity, um, but because of that, it just like it's uh, it's the most silly of these three because it's just such a a bizarre thing. But it this is the most silly of the three. Oh yeah, because possibly in Michigan is silly. Um, but... superstars, I in my mind is like this like silliest. It's not. <laughs> I mean, it's the darkest of the three, oh, yeah. but I also think there's, like, I don't know. That's an interesting, we'll talk well, about Well, I think yeah. each of us picked a different, <laughs> a different one, one. one to be like... the silliest. Because I, I would, I mean, I thought possibly in Michigan was the silliest. Well, I guess we'll have to debate that in the end. What constitutes silly? Right? What, how, how do you define silliness? But yeah, the, the thing I really enjoy about He Was Once is the production. I, I mean, yeah. it, it definitely looks cheap, but the cheapness goes hand-in-hand hand with the Davy and Goliath parody. Because yeah. it's it's like that primitive claymation where they shave Davy's face with uh, in the clay, but he's still got, like, lumps in his face. <laughs> in his face. <laughs> well, and even, like, right at the very beginning of the movie to really establish, like, this is claymation, they have Randy and Shirley do that thing where Randy sticks his hands out and Shirley puts her hands under and tries to slap his hands, which is something that's, like, super fast. And then they film it in a way where they I, they must have shot it at, like... Yeah, do you think they just cut out frames or did they just film it in a slower, slower rate? It's hard to say. I mean, because it's clearly a very low-budget short and I don't know that much about <laughs> shooting on film. Uh, so I'm, I'm no expert on, like the effects of frame rates, because there's a lot you can do with frame rate, but at the same time, it's not that choppy where it's, like, missing whole seconds. It's, it's just, like, fractions of a second seem to be removed from the moment so that everything has this, like, that herky-jerkiness that mm-hmm. with with claymation or you, like... It's just inherent in it. Yeah, yeah. because, with, especially with David and Goliath claymation, it's not like Nightmare Before Christmas where they're like, spending four years to get these, like, elaborate tracking shots and make things smooth. Like, yeah. It's like, all right, we need this done. We need this whole episode done this week. Yeah. Break through it. And so you'll get, The like, original South Park. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's using that, and because David Goliath was religious, he was once... It's not directly uh, about religion, but it kind of touches on the Bizarro World version of what happens in a Davy and Goliath cartoon. It's so tongue-in-cheek. Yeah. I wrote down, I mean, uh, at the beginning, there's a scene where Davy's family is praying before they eat dinner, and his dad, in the prayer, openly complains about the food, but he says at the same time, honor thy parents. And then the film goes on to also try to teach the lesson of, 
you're too old to be telling lies. And then it comes around to the the dad spoiler is the one. Alert. Yeah, spoiler yeah. alert. <laughs> the dad is the one who's been telling a lie, and so which is know. like that, like because that part was like just the weirdest like choice of a script to be like he like fakes a phone call and then is like, uh, nope, you're lying. Yeah, just to like just to whip his son or like they're the reason. That's the, that was the thing that caught me because I know you're saying that the end was really sort of obtuse for you. Yeah, <laughs> and it's definitely like, that's definitely a thing that I don't super understand either. I'm making I have some guesses in my brain as to what that is. I think it's just uh... well, let's get let's kind of go over like the non-dream part because the non-dream part has its own narrative. Yeah, and then yeah. the dream sequences. They, while they comment on the narrative, they seem to exist, like, totally separate from yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, but, like, the core narrative is basically, like, Davy sees a bear, he tells his family, his dad thinks he's lying, he fakes a phone call. He gets spanked. Because he just does not trust his son. He spanks his son. Son finds out the truth, and he gets to spank his dad. <laughs> That's, like, really what it boils down to. But the belt has Jesus' face on it. It does? Uh, yeah. yeah. You didn't when see he goes, that. Oh, man, I yeah. missed that. It's like, close-up, oh. just, like, the Jesus with the crown of thorns. Remember the, um, remember when that fresco got destroyed by yeah. the devil? It's that <laughs> image. No. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so it's, correct me if I'm just confusing Mortal Laurel with Davy and Goliath, but I'm pretty sure a big aspect of Davy and Goliath is the fact that, like, Davy experiences something, and Goliath warns him ab- about it, but ultimately, like, an authority figure tells Davy, like, this is how it should be in the end. Like, is that... No, that's kind of, that's, yeah, yeah that's that's the, the thing that I think Davy and Goliath is, is about, is a lot of Goliath reminding him, like, well, this is what you've been told to do, and then he de- decidedly does not that. Yeah. He's like, I'm just gonna do what I want, actually, and then an adult tells, this is why the Bible says you're supposed to do this. And so, yeah, using Davy and Goliath to, like, be like, you can't trust your parents. (laughs) Your parents are just as flawed as you and will abuse you if they get the chance. Yeah, jeez. And so so it has that, and it has this, it sets up all this stuff about repression, and this will come up when we talk about Superstar, but he was once, has this core of your, your family will try to control you control your thoughts and control the way you it's the family is not supportive the sister wants to see her brother beaten the dad wants to beat the brother he the son he doesn't want to find him wrong the mother doesn't help either way and except for well, when the mom like slaps her daughter yeah. because she like spills food on the floor yeah which is like the weirdest moment in it because it's like again it's the the stop motion like slow motion slap that goes into place which is like super weird well, and then actually, now that you mention it too, she slaps her for that, and then when they find out the dad lies, she's the one who tells the son to to belt the dad. So she just loves punishment. <laughs> she loves amusing people, uh, and so it yeah, it, it upends that. But okay, so to get into the dreams, the first dream sequence is basically it's the sister's dream, and she. And they kind of mentioned, like, during when Davy's telling them about the bear, she's scared. And in the dream, she has a nightmare about the bear coming and, he, like, traps her and bites her ear off. And also, I should mention, it's in black and white and very, like, Lynchian, uh, like, overly like, shadowy. Way too light. dark, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then, um, and so the bear, which the bear's wearing, like, a flannel shirt, <laughs> just like a lumberjack <laughs> for some reason, bites her ear oh, off. Oh, I thought 
thought that the bear was just her dad. With no, because the dad no, runs up with the gun. The dad runs up with the gun um, and kills the bear. Take, he goes like, "Give me the ear," and the bear's like, "All right." And they, <laughs> say, and they put, they just connect the ear back to her head. And I noticed that this time because because the bear takes Sally's ear, and then Davy's dream is also about his ear. But in his dream, he turns his ear around. And everyone in his family is like, Davy, turn your ear around. They and each get their chance to tell him that. And and but just, then his dog is love, then whose dog, who is also, we haven't mentioned, not actually a dog, but an ottoman. Yeah. <laughs> with the tail a tail and a collar. Like footstool thing, yeah. And but uh, like his dog is the one who tells him, like, no, I like your ear the way it is. Like, and then he goes, like, he listens to his dog versus his family. And his family disappears, and it cuts a close-up of Davey looking, like, very satisfied. And this, yeah, this is the part that it's, like, really tough to figure out what they're, they're getting at. Because, um, yeah, th- there seems to be some sort of, like, Freudian metaphor with ears that I, like, really like, haven't put looked into. Right? Yeah. I was like, that's the thing that, like, I wanted to do. Like, one second of research, and then forgot to do that after watching, because it's <laughs> yeah. like, I missed it. Just got well, wrong. according to dreammoods.com, Ooh, when the you... The leading authority <laughs> on all these dreams. Uh, to see dream ears in your dreams suggests that you need to be more responsive or receptive to guidance and assistance from others. You may be relying too much on your own judgment or intuition. So... From so when Davy turns his ear around, he's saying, he's saying like, "Well, I was listening, but now I'm not." He's yeah. subverting authority. Yes. yes. Whereas Sally, her ear, she needs her ear. She's like, it's like it's horrifying that something would take her ear away, but then her dad is like, "Yes, no, here's your ear back. You can be receptive again. You don't have to worry. I'm here to tell you that everything is all right and to take care of you." And yeah, actually, that kind of really that, you know that, uh, that made that gave all the answers. You're welcome, or <laughs> as they say in uh, Mystery Science Theater, you're, you're welcome. welcome. <laughs> Man, you really cracked the case. Jeez, because I wrote down symbolism Detective of the ear? Question mark. <laughs> no, but Guys, I think dreammoods.com. It's the key to all <laughs> mysteries. <laughs> this show brought to you by dreammoods.com. <laughs> Our unofficial sponsor today. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think that, I, the other thing that I wanted to mention about both, about actually all of these, specifically He Was Once and Superstar, is the, the sound for them is so, like, ADR'd, like, it's such a, like, lo-fi, like, they obviously, like, recorded in this, in the studio either after they had shot all of it, or, like, maybe they never, like, actually shot sound at all, and they were like, well, let's figure it out later, let's, let's do this all in post. Yeah. But it's still enjoyable to listen to. Oh, it's to. totally, like, it's yeah. great. Like, it, it, it adds to the the aesthetic of the, It definitely adds, like, a creepy feel. Like, a really, like, out-of-place, like, vibe to oh, what yeah. it is you're watching. Oh, and I'm, I'm definitely going to expand <laughs> on this when we get into Superstar, but all three of these movies live in the Uncanny Valley. Like, they do just enough emphasis on real things in the real world to make it just so creepy anytime they break from it like when Davy takes turns his ear around and there's that just dream sequence where everyone's talking slowly and very deeply it's it's just I don't know that's that's part of what makes it like all these things like heightening this creepiness about suburbia that just like it is a portrait of 
the same types of neighborhoods we see in Superstar and the neighborhood and possibly in Michigan, but it just like dements it so much that you can't watch it and just be like, oh yeah, that's my neighborhood. You're like, oh, I, I guess I know that type of neighborhood, but it's never felt like that to me. No, I agree with that because <laughs> yeah. I think that like there's a lot of like, especially in, uh, in He Was Once, where like when he's grabbing the phone, like the hand that is... I don't know if you guys saw this, and I'm not sure if it actually happened, so I want you guys to tell me. <laughs> but, like, the hand that's holding the phone looks like it's a plastic hand. Like, it doesn't look like it was actually, like, because, like, the actor is playing it as a kid. Yeah. So, like, it looks like, it's like this adult, like, like pre, like, buster gripped hand that's, like, holding the phone, and then, like, his voice isn't super in sync with what he's saying the whole yeah. time. <laughs> Which, like, again, is sort of in, like, the Uncanny Valley from when then he does, like, actually, like, the ADR matches up. Yeah. And, like, the folk, the voices is matching makes it a little bit weirder when they, like, choose to do that or when they didn't choose to do that. It was just really weird. It just yeah. makes it scarier and more intentional. I like it. Yeah, it's really cool. Uh, well, I guess I guess we should move into Superstar then. Right. Long ago. Yeah, we have, have Carpenter songs stuck in our head the rest of the night. That's uh, gonna be great. All right. Well, I'll just start by saying this movie is genuinely one of the scariest movies in my mind that I've ever seen, and I'm not really scared by much at all. Like my favorite horror movie is The Thing, and I don't really find it scary anymore. But Superstar just hits me perfectly every time I watch it, where it's just always unsettling, and the music is just, like, per the music and the visuals and the the choice of way in which the, the story is, is plays out is just so horrifying to the extent that, like, it seems like there's no... And I know, until I watched it with other people, I, I honestly thought there was no other way to read it other than just, like, a, a pure horror movie about anorexia. That's really what it feels like, but... um you said it was the silliest. <laughs> well, and I mean, like, it's, 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 honestly, it's honestly a lot of that is just that, like, the Todd Haynes directing style is, I think it's really, it's really funny the way that he directs stuff. Because, like, it's in, like, all of the movies that I've watched of his have been kind of the same, like, thing where he just, at the, at the onset, just doesn't ever decide what type of movie he's going to be making. Where he's like am I going to make a biopic or am I going to make like an NCIS thriller thing? <laughs> <laughs> or is this a true crime documentary? Or is this going to be like a concert video of the Carpenters? Yeah. <laughs> or like, is this a PSA about anorexia? Right? And like, that's the thing is like, he just like, he chooses to like, and it's the same reason why like Poison is real. We were talking about yeah, Poison Poison earlier. is literally three genres. Just like, like he just is like, these are all different movies. Deal He's with it, He's so bitch. good. And Todd Haynes' strength is that he can imitate almost any genre. Yeah. I mean, He's the, very, very good at it. Yeah. I'm his, Not There was that as well. Yeah. Yeah. I'm Not There. I don't know what genre that would technically be considered. <laughs> yeah. But like Far From Heaven is yeah. such a great... Uh, like Preston's, not Preston Sturgis. Douglas uh, Sirk. Yeah, yeah. Douglas Sirk, a parody. Uh, oh, what's the but other one like, I'm thinking it, of? It, it's even saying parody is like short shrift to how thoroughly he oh, understands gosh, like yeah. whatever genre he's committed to the thing that he he is making. Yeah, he's definitely studying every genre and picking out shots. Like, okay, this shot, this epitomizes. This specific genre of movie. This I gotta use a shot feels. like this. Yeah, yeah he, he's so good at recreating it, but with his own spin on it. Yeah. Yeah, he's one of the best, like, film critic as directors out there. Just yeah. Every film of his is 
there's clear there's like a narrative and then there's a political text and a political subtext but artistically on top of all of that there's a specific movie or genre of movie that he's approaching and using that genre to comment on the narrative or using the narrative to comment on that genre there's a lot of interplay between the different texts in his movies and even something like safe which you i I remember the first time i watched it it seems like nothing happens in safe and the more you think about it it's just it's almost overwhelming how many layers of reflection uh, reflectability come out of just like a narrative about a woman who gets sick and then uh, goes to stay out in the country. I mean, that, that's basically it. That's like really the plot <laughs> of that movie. And I'm not there. Well, yeah, and what's the plot of Poison? Yeah, what is the plot of Poison? <laughs> what's, I mean, and I'm uh, not there. What a great movie. The plot is Bob Dylan's is like loosely Bob Dylan's <laughs> life. Like, I mean, like that is a movie that I will have many discussions. We'll have discussions on it later. But like, that's a thing where like I think that another great soundtrack, another great soundtrack. But that's again, that's a thing where like I think what he's commenting on is in the same way as like Karen Carpenter with with Superstar to bring it back around. What he's commenting on is like how success can ruin a person and all like and, or and how some, we construct a celebrity. How yeah, how yeah. how we how we create this image of the person and that becomes them Mm -hmm. for better or for worse and with this it was a lot easier because barbie is the perfect like is the perfect character to play somebody like yeah yeah somebody let's let's get into superstar so the movie superstar colon the karen carpenter story uh is about karen carpenter and richard carpenter aka the carpenters and it starts with the scene where, and I even, I even think it says reenactment. Yeah, dramatization. <laughs> which right. only furthers my theory that he's really trying to play on the true crime documentary aspect. But it's horrifying. And it's like, a, it's, like oh. it's, it's, it's like, it's too, like you were saying, it's Uncanny Valley, where like, it's too real. Like, he tells you it's a dramatization, so you're already but, like, prepared for it to be like. And yeah. also, how weird is it they have to clarify it's a dramatization when it's a point of view shot? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, so it starts with this dramatization where uh, Karen Carpenter's mom looks for her and... She's like, Karen! Karen, you're right! And then, you know, you you find out that Karen is dead. But as as it walks walks, as the camera moves through the house toward Karen, there's this like, oh, like this like dark hum Mm -hmm. of music that like gets more and more foreboding the closer oh, yeah. it gets. And then when she finds Karen's body, she just starts screaming like, Karen! Karen! And there's this like, <laughs> music, and just like... Well, and then this voice comes in and it says, the you know, something like, the Carpenters... Uh, what happened? Yeah, what happened to the Carpenters? Let's start at the beginning. And then it perfectly segues... Into the song I was singing long ago. Superstar. So, so yeah. Far away. Yeah. yeah. And it they he does that so many times in this movie where he perfectly segues the song into what he's representing in the movie. Yeah. And uh, there's yeah. a scene later in the movie where it's a scene where Karen is like depressed in her dressing room and she's really low energy and she's she fell asleep and she has to go perform and then it segues into rainy days and Mondays and it has her you know saying 
talking to myself and feeling old, uh, hanging around, nothing to do but frown, uh, and it's just like such a perfect segue. Well, also, he constructs the the music in that really, really, like, very spot Spot on. Spot on, yeah. And with Rainy Days and Mondays, too, that's the song when she, during it, she collapses on stage, right? Yeah. Well, during, and, and it's Rainy Days and Mondays always get me down, and as she's singing that there's this footage intercut with the performance from Poseidon Adventure right at the moment the ship starts to capsize when people are like falling to their deaths. Oh, and so yeah. it's like it'll cut to like someone falling like in the like onto a stained glass window and then her performing and then a piano falling off like what's the floor becoming the wall, the piano mm-hmm. falling and breaking, and then she collapses. Mm-hmm. Like she does like that sort of like like little it starts introducing little bits of what he's getting to before he actually introduces it. So it's almost like there's no parts of this movie that you could really say is like a scene because of how successfully edited it is, everything just bleeds together and foreshadows or is continuing what the previous scene was setting up. It's, yeah, it's really incredible uh, how densely layered. Yeah, and the other thing uh, about this movie that we should mention is instead of using actual actors or like in He Was Once where people are dressed up like cartoon characters... This is actually film of Barbie dolls enacting all of the scenes. So Karen Carpenter is being played by a Barbie doll. Uh, Diane Warwick gets played by a Barbie doll. (laughs) Also, wherever that Dionne Warwick Barbie doll is, like, can we own that? Like, I feel like that's a thing Uh, that we just need to, like, shut down. She had a fabulous dress on. Because that was just really, that was a really funny choice. Well, and Richard Carpenter's played by a Ken doll. Yeah. Um, And then later... Karen Carpenter's husband is also played by a Ken doll. Almost the same Ken doll. Hmm. Yeah. Symbolism. <laughs> well, like, we were doing, you guys talking about that, too. The, how they play, they play up, uh, they definitely play up the, like, brother-sister, like, yeah. incest aspect. Well, and that's another reason why this movie is so interesting, is it's, I mean, aside from the whole Karen Carpenter having, you know, anorexia and Richard dealing with his, like, quaaludes addiction... At the center of it, there's this strange brother-sister relationship where the brother is writing romantic songs for his sister to sing with him. It's like, okay, I love my brother. I have a brother. He's great. Hey, Andrew. But I I would never want to like write a song that's really romantic and then be like, okay, Andrew, sing this song with me. It'll, it's not weird. It's totally not weird. This definitely isn't creepy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and they show they show all the shots of the two of them walking on the beach together, which is like yeah, they the, like cut that like four times, like the so most many times. Reliable eighties cliche of like. Well, and lovers. they even show her in a wedding dress, and there's you know the person she's getting married to is is kind of blurred out. Well, but it, later, when she meets her husband in the film, the person that's blurred out is still like the same blurry shot from when she was hanging out with Richard walking the beach. But also, too, when when she first meets her husband, the very first thing she says to her mom is she's like, oh, I didn't know Richard was here. And she's like, oh, that's not Richard. Cut to, she's married to that guy. Yeah, they <laughs> like, yeah, like really play it up. Uh, side note, I found out in reality via Wikipedia, so take this with a grain of salt. Uh, but they got <laughs> divorced reviews. fairly quickly. Uh, and uh, one of the reasons that the divorce is cited to have happened is 
her husband, um, when they got married, she really wanted to have kids and have a family. And after they were married, he revealed to her that he had already had a vasectomy. So, not great. A little tidbit for our listeners. Don't start a marriage with lies. Not not a good foundation for marriage. Especially about vasectomies. (laughs) Vasectomies are something you should discuss prior to getting married. Like, when you first meet someone. Yeah. (laughs) Just leave with that. Maybe, like, the second. (laughs) But... Yes. What are you drinking? I've had a vasectomy. But I, I'm <laughs> My name is Paolo Noves de Ferencarone. <laughs> yeah, seems like a, a topic you would want to address prior to getting married. Um, hey, really quickly, I feel like, especially this movie, we got to touch on just the controversy behind it. Oh, like, yeah. Yeah. So this movie... Uh, Todd Haynes, he made this movie, it got a bunch of art film praise, and it started to gain popularity and kind of become a cult hit, and then Richard Carpenter saw it, and he was pretty pissed off. For a couple reasons. The first reason being that, uh... All that incest stuff we were talking about. Yeah. The incest <laughs> stuff. Not great. Um, there was also the fact that, like, and I mean, this is the, the super obvious one, is that they were using the Carpenter's music throughout without getting <laughs> yeah. any permission from that's pretty anybody. Which is like, Todd that's Haynes a hardcore like, thing to do. do. This. Like, nobody's gonna watch this, which is yeah. kind of where I think that he was like thinking yeah. when he made it. Yeah. Like, I mean, who's gonna see this? Let's be real. He was playing with Barbie dolls. <laughs> and, uh, like, and making a movie about Karen Carpenter. <laughs> yeah. He was probably making it like, nobody's gonna watch this. That was this. like a fan video that he just like came up with in his basement. It's like... <laughs> We're going to make this weird, like, art film. He probably made this movie because he loves the Carpenters. Yeah. Yeah. He's probably just like, yeah, I want to tell Karen Carpenter's weird story. Yeah. So do it with Barbie dolls. She's great. I mean, she has a gorgeous voice. Yeah. And that's another reason that this movie really works is because it uses the Carpenters' music. Their music is just so easy to listen to. And like you said, he uses it to comment on the actions of the plot so well that the movie couldn't be as great as it is without the music. He does it better than some musicals do. You know, a good, a really good musical uses a musical number to tell the story of the movie. It's not just filler, like in, uh, oh God, I can't think of an example right now, but it's not just filler, uh, for, okay, we gotta have a dance scene, we need to have, you know, Audrey Hepburn meet with Rex Harrison or whatever, I'm just throwing names out, but, um, How dare you sully my fair lady Well, that is done get, nothing to Get you. me to the church on time is a pretty stupid <laughs> oh, song. a classic time waster. <laughs> yeah, okay, there we go, that's an example. Yeah. Whereas, in this movie, he uses the, the Carpenter's music to tell the story of the Carpenter's, which is, I don't think is why Richard Carpenter wrote those songs. (laughs) And I think that's why it's so effective. And also, the the other controversial elements, they do imply that Richard Carpenter is gay. He's not. He's not, but they do imply it. Remember, he says, uh, Karen says, I'll I'll tell mom about your... Private, private life, life. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Which, yeah. I mean, well, maybe he was referring to the Quaaludes thing. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, it could be a lot of things, but it's. But that was there's a lot of there's a lot oh, of yeah. like that. Well, and also, yeah, I think we mentioned already, but yeah, Barbies. Uh, yeah. The, the, the using Barbies to Mattel was not the most happy. 
that they were being associated with anorexia. Along, yeah, they whittle down a Barbie to make it look emaciated, so it has that connection that I'm sure they didn't want. And a lot of the Barbies have burned marks on their faces. Yeah, the, the parents <laughs> look like, I, yeah, it looks like they just took a lighter to the face until it looks They were like, we want to give this Barbie some wrinkles. We What's did? the best way to do that? <laughs> Fire. Fire's the best way to do that. Yeah. What melts plastic? Fire. <laughs> Microwaves. And so most, because of this controversy with Mattel, with Richard Carpenter, with not having licensed the music, in uh, 1990, Todd Haynes lo- lost a lawsuit. And basically all of the copies of this movie had to be either destroyed or kind of filed away. But I found out that MoMA in New York, they have a copy like a, a film print copy, but they're they have an agreement with the Carpenter estate that they will not show it. So there is a preserved copy. It'll be out one day. Like oh, yeah. Day the Clown Cried, they just announced this year that when Jerry Lewis dies, we're gonna get to see it. They're gonna oh. finally start showing it. So they're sure as hell gonna show a superstar when the Carpenters <laughs> when the remaining Carpenter family are dead. It's I don't know, Todd Haynes is an extremely important filmmaker. There's no way that they're yeah. just going to stay buried forever. It's too good of a movie to ignore anyway. And that's why you can just watch it on YouTube whenever you want. Because we <laughs> just keep uploading it. You can't hide this movie away. Um, it's so... Like, it's such a short, short film. But they do it so... Like, they tell such a concise story. For as, like, narratively diverse as it is. Like, because they do so many different things. But they tell such a very, like big story in such a short amount of time which is really neat about it yeah and beyond the the biopic elements and the horror movie elements there is like documentary sections yeah uh and the documentary sections not only are talking about the nature of anorexia but also contextualizing it within like like they, they have that scene where the they, 70s music crew. 70s music crew and even like the way in which supermarkets are really blowing up in the 70s and so food yeah. was available everywhere and the way in which like that sort of availability and combined with like the type of image that the carpenters have to keep up and there, there's all these little things that he's he, all these through lines that he keeps going throughout the movie it's never just like something is introduced and abandoned everything matters and is always carried out to its end point its natural end point oh and, and also and just i was thinking too of controversial stuff on top of everything else i'm sure richard carpenter did not like seeing the holocaust footage that is in this movie yeah that heavily not. a bunch of holocaust yeah. like they just uh, intercut it sort of whenever but it's specifically footage of an emaciated corpse being dropped into a pit and the the implication of how that relates to karen carpenter is like really just gut churning and it's disturbing and that's a lot of this but it needs i mean it needs to be there the point is i mean this movie more so than i think any other movie i've ever seen takes such a strong uh position on like conveying anorexia anorexia is like one of those things that i never people it does not get addressed they don't like i mean like the only other thing that i can think of it is a hard thing to address i mean like how do you represent it in film without having somebody go through that with their actual body. And I mean, like, the only the only thing that I can think of that, that actually addressed it well was, have you guys seen the show Skins? No. Yes. There, it's like one of the, like, it's like this, the second episode of the series, like, they 
deal with a girl who has anorexia, yeah. and she does a whole... Like, and they definitely bit. touch on it on Degrassi. On, of course, obviously. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like, and like with teen dramas, they've, they've gotten a little bit better about it. But at Skins, they do a really interesting conversation where she's at a meal with, her, like, with some older guy who's trying to, like, coach her through her anorexia. And she's, like, showing him how to get away with being anorexic. And she's just like, you just move your food around your plate like this. And you make the conversation about them so that they're not paying attention to what you're doing on your plate. Oh, yeah. And, like, it's a lot, like, so they go through, like, the psychology of, like, how to fool people. And I thought, like, there was a part yeah. in this movie, and it might not even have been this one. But I think, like, there was a version of Superstar that I saw earlier where I think that they talk about, um, and there's some, like, narration about how when she goes to the clinic... Actually, what they're doing is they're just teaching her how to be a better anorexic because that's what kind of happens right. at anorexia clinics for a lot of people who go there is that you're you're surrounded by other anorexics, so you're kind of you just, learn different techniques. You're learning the different ways to cheat the system, yeah. which I think like, and I, I don't know if, if we just I think saw that's kind that of a copy, side effect of any rehab. of any kind of addiction. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, is when you're around other addicts, you're just going to learn mm -hmm. better ways to to get away with being an addict. Well, and even what they mentioned in the movie is that anorexia is such a unique disorder that they don't really, at least when this movie came out, they sure had no idea how to solve it. And they definitely did not know during Karen Carpenter's time. It was, and they say like pretty much the solution to the problem was just to force the person to eat until they were heavy enough. And then they're just like, yeah, you're cured. Like, which, it's fine. Yeah. We solved the problem. Which is like well, locking I, a, a drug addict in a room, and they're like, yeah, he didn't do drugs for the whole week he was locked in that room, so he's good. Mission accomplished. Well, but, and, and another thing I think with Karen Carpenter, what happened is she went to rehab, and she did gain weight back, but she gained it back very quickly. And her body, I don't think her body was ready for it. I think that mm -hmm. that's part of why her heart failed is her body just wasn't ready for all that that weight to come back and be put on it. I mean, yeah. her, her heart was so weak. Yeah. But yeah, I do, I think this movie really, I, I want to give it kudos on how it represents anorexia. I mean, it definitely doesn't glamorize it. No. And it also makes a point of educating the audience on what anorexia is and how it works. And it also says at one point that anorexia is... Um, similar to like fascism of the body yeah, because yeah. The, the person plays both the dictator but also the victim. I thought that was a really interesting way of putting it. Well, and I th something that's I actually... Which invites the Holocaust comparison. Yeah. Which is also great that he, he did that in the narrative. Yeah. It's not just like a shock image. It's a yeah. very he ties it carefully in. chosen image. Yeah. Uh, and also just the fact that this movie is about Karen Carpenter, and he portrays her as the most normal person ever. Oh, yeah. He does not allow a situation to exist where it's like, oh, well, that's just how she would deal with it. It's There's no there's nothing about her psychology that makes it like, well, it's her fault she's anorexic. She is a normal, sweet person who, as soon as this pressure is placed on her, finds herself doing it. Mm -hmm. And it really just goes to emphasize, too, that this isn't, like, something that is exclusive to a certain type of person. This is something that can happen to anybody. Yeah. This is not, like, yeah. it's not just, like, a disease you catch, other than, except if you think of it the extent of, like, society gives you the disease. Yeah. Right? And, and, like, and they discuss that, too, where, like, yeah. the reason why she, she goes on this diet and why she, like, basically becomes anorexic is because somebody in the media said that she was chubby. Criticized yeah. her, yeah. Criticized her for her weight. 
And, like, again, that's just kind of, like, a shitty thing that we actually still do today. Yeah. yeah. Which, like, because there was the whole, like, Melissa McCarthy thing where the guy was like, she's too fat and too ugly to be oh, in movies. Well, yeah. did you hear about the newscaster recently who was, who, um, got criticized because she had gained weight, but she was pregnant? It's like, yeah, she's pregnant. Of course she's going to gain weight. The cool thing about Jesus how Christ. pregnant bodies work is that they're, <laughs> that's what they do. That's yeah, if you want a healthy baby, you kind of have to gain weight. Jeez. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I don't know. You should probably be starving that baby. You don't want a fat baby. (laughs) (laughs) Fatter fatter babies mean harder pregnancy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, they they talk a lot about how the Carpenters existed kind of... There's that one interview. I don't know if it's actually documentary or like a fake documentary segment, but they talk to that woman who, because her title is all black and it's plays over like a black hat so you have no idea what her job title is i think but, it said musician it was my like yeah best guess you can see the letter m so that's probably yeah. a solid <laughs> guess uh but um she talks about how the carpenters to her represented reactionary values of the 70s and so she could never really trust them this idea that the carpenters music it is beautiful, timeless music, but at the time it came out, it was coming out when Led Zeppelin mm. and Black Sabbath. Oh, yeah. And it's all very of, fluffy. All of the very, like, sexual, loud music that, <clears throat> like, we now think of as very mainstream was becoming popular. Psychedelic. And mm-hmm. so, kind of as, like, that response of the country who's afraid of that, The Carpenters was exactly what appealed to them. And because... It was definitely a throwback. But because they had that pure image, it became about maintaining that image. Mm -hmm. And part of maintaining that image was that Karen Carpenter was this beautiful, skinny, tall woman. And I don't think anyone in the movie flat out says, like, you have to be skinny or else the Carpenters are finished or anything like that. But it's very much, like... It doesn't take it's a... It's not a long jump. Yeah, it's yeah. not a long jump to they imagine. Just never, just, they never address it, but it's one of those things that they don't address on purpose. Yeah, it's like she has that pressure uh, implicit in what she does that she mm-hmm. has to look good. And she has to look... Her look has to represent pure American values. Like the 1950s image. Mm-hmm. And when we think of like the stereotypical 1950s Americana image, we don't imagine a woman who's, like, slightly overweight. We think of, like, the June Cleaver stereotype of, like, the perfect woman with no flaws visible at all who just exists to, like, please. Well, and and one of the other things that Todd Haynes uh, uses when he's kind of giving his narrative overview of anorexia is he talks about how anorexia is uh, a part of the internal experience of contemporary femininity, which I think is true. I think... Every woman at some point, whether they want to or not, questions how their looks reflect who they are. And I think that for Karen Carpenter, especially, you know, the way she's portrayed in this movie, is her looks will get her the success that she wants. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's, and it's almost like the, the cruelest tragedy of this movie is the scene where Karen's brother comes up to her and is like, you look so skinny. And it's like, like yelling at her for being thin and it just like further underlines this point there's nothing that she can do to please everybody with her body there is no weight that she will hit that she can maintain first of all but that that will make her feel perfect that will make other people not criticize her because like that like that guy who told her she looked 
who said she looked chubby in the news. There's no reason for him to say that. There, it didn't help. It was just like him being stupid and selfish. And yet, but she's like, that's important. I have to please that person, mm -hmm. even though he has no idea what he's talking about. And she has to please herself. Yeah, and he though, means nothing to her. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, yeah, it just really, it's a no-win scenario. As soon as she starts, unless she goes to that, like, three-year cure that they talk about in the movie, there is no way out. She's just doomed to, like, never be happy and either, and if she even seems to think like she's making progress, all she's doing is upsetting the people around her. And mm -hmm. yeah, she can't win. And I like that. I like that they very decidedly make her the victim in this because she is, yeah, in in all actuality, the victim of this. Well, because like when her brother again, like he finds the the X-lax in her room, and he's like, "How can you do this to me?" And like the whole like he's he's not mad because she's doing this to herself. He's mad because. She's doing this to him. Yeah, because she doesn't she, have energy to perform. Or... Yeah, because like because he she she's not ruining his her career. She is, but she's also ruining his. Yeah. And that's the thing that's more important to him is that his career is being damaged, which is also probably rare. Richard Carpenter doesn't like his characters. Anymore. Yeah, he's, <laughs> he's yeah he's a clear cut villain. There's no sympathetic moment for him in this movie. No. Beyond that, the parents in this movie, I think, and I think if we're gonna bring it back around to sort of all of these yeah. movies, like the parents in, I mean, because he was once the only one, the other one that had parents. Yeah. I just want to say a, a touch on a theme that was sort of like weirdly addressed in both of these, which is spanking. Yeah. Like the idea of corporal punishment in both of these movies, because in Superstar, it's in the like weirdest, like sort of... Almost subliminal. Subliminal, like, yeah. yeah, like they just like are showing like the Barbies getting, getting spanked. And it's the same thing, but I mean, like, and he was once, it's a it's a pivotal part of the, the thing, but, like, corporal punishment is a way to discipline children, to get what you want out of a child. Oh, yeah. But, yeah, both these movies kind of set up this, this family dynamic where the family is not supportive to the extent that the protagonist is entirely isolated by their family while remaining trapped within their family. Yeah. And the spanking is a way of just like furthering that isolation by punishing them. And also the theme of repression too in both of yeah. them. Like the mother and superstar really will not let her daughter move. Uh, she wants to be there when she goes to get this treatment, even though they, the doctor advises like, you got to do it alone. It's about you. But they're like, no, it's about us. We have to be involved. Yeah. Um, I don't trust this guy. It's in New York City. Like, it's such a... Like, when she, even when she wants to move out of the house, where she's like, well, Richard moved out of the house and he was 25. And they're like, no, it was 26. Yeah. Which is like the weird kind of like, just very like... Definitely absent, control. Like, yeah. yeah. It's probably where Karen got from. Yeah. And, <laughs> and you see that reflected in He Was Once. The, the dad does not trust uh, Davy. I, and maybe this this definitely is a Todd Haynes thing, because Todd Haynes always touches on repression. Poison is entirely about repression. If I understood safe better, if I had seen it more times, I would conclusively say it's about repression. I'm just pretty sure it's about repression. Far, far From Heaven deals with, like... <laughs> the key, the, the actual, yeah. oh, like, gosh. the inciting into that movie is exactly what repression is. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and then it finds a way to be about another kind of oppression, like, right? Yeah. Um, I, and oh, Dennis Quaid! <laughs> so good! Yeah. Oh, and Julianne Moore. That movie's great. Have you guys seen... Just a... Go see it. Sidetrack. Have you guys seen the supercut of Julianne Moore crying? No. no. There's like a three and a half minute video. That oh, God, on I bet. 
just Julianne Moore like crying in movies, and it's perfect. It's exactly what you would want out of it because she's just like, and she's probably crying twelve different ways. Which is yeah, because yeah. it's just like in every movie, she's, she's, she's amazing. Does it include the scene from Magnolia where she's like, "Don't you fucking call me lady"? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> of course. Uh, it's great. That's awesome. Um, this is a this was an interesting couple of movies because yeah like I think repression is a is a big part of it. What are the other themes that we can pull out of this? I guess the sticking to he was once a superstar with this, but the repression element by using Davy and Goliath. Davy and Goliath is an older cartoon. It's mm-hmm. from what like the, the I think it's like sixties or seventies sixties and seventies, but it's definitely representing a, a sort of outdated a naive clean cut version of life mm-hmm. and both of the and then superstars using carpenters for essentially that same metaphorical purpose and also and how, barbie yeah and barbie too yeah and so how all these symbols of like how the world should be or how people like to pretend it should be are just ways of kind of repressing the dark truth that no one can really deal with about like, not just the way the world is changing, but the way people are and that people have these problems and a perfect easy version, like the 50s suburb stereotype is impossible to uh, reconcile with like the dark reality of the world. That's like why the blue velvet comparison is perfect. (laughs) Because it's like exactly that just, but like with these movies, they kind of, abstract it to make more specific points about mm-hmm. it which yeah i think that's that's the because i mean like even and to bring possibly in michigan yeah. into this as well is like you do have sort of like the idea of like of count not, not necessarily counterculture but like just the subcultures yeah. within this that are growing sort of out of reactionary elements that are just like that are disparate to the way things are but are also exactly the way things are mm-hmm. That are running counter to, which yeah, counterculture was actually correct. Yeah, I said that before. <laughs> yeah, um, but I think that like that's the that's interesting to see how counterculture affects culture and how it realistically is the the culture that they're sort of coming at in this movie. Yeah, and all these movies, and a lot of the points made in these movies too are as much as these are experimental, more or less difficult works. They're not saying anything that nowadays we would consider all that shocking of a point of view, mm-hmm. but in the times which, in like the 80s, especially during, like, this came out in a peri- during the period where, like, Reagan was president, or at least superstar, and he was once the very tail end of eight years of a Reagan presidency, and mm-hmm. it's, I, I, I didn't live during that period of time, but None it's very, were alive it's, then. yeah, it's very famously conservative. Yeah, we're young. A very, yeah, <laughs> dating ourselves, but a very famously conservative period in our country's history, uh, where things like the whole like say no to drugs campaign yeah. and a lot of stuff was very yeah, much simplified and like you're just like you guys are thinking of it wrong. Just think of it this way: trust in Jesus, and the problem will be solved. Instead of actually trying to engage. Oh yeah, in there it. was there was the kind of the cover up of real issues. Mm-hmm. when it comes to this kind of stuff especially anorexia anorexia didn't really start getting a platform until probably the late 90s yeah i feel like laura flynn boyle really uh oh and heroin chic fashion in the 90s oh like, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah like kate moss and people who are just like <laughs> size zero like that really really fucked up time in the 90s where size zero was the thing people aspired Remember Fiona yeah. Apple? Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> Remember the music video for Criminal? Because that was 
we could also watch that in this and be like, God, no. And that's what a so great weird. song. And so you, <laughs> but beautiful. But like, <laughs> great music, Fiona. When you, when I was in, I, I, I was in fourth grade when that album came out, whatever album. Title. Ti- yeah, title. Title. When Title came out. And I remember, and think about like how sexual and how like oh yeah she's in like a bathtub and but in fourth grade i remember like putting my backpack on a rack and one of the kids in my class being like hey paulo and like pulling out the field (laughs) (laughs) bags like check this out i got it and so like it was that image of women was like so mainstream that fourth grade catholic boys were like (laughs) yeah my mom bought me this album and it's like totally cool and yeah and uh, even so, even in well, the nineties, they weren't examining well, this stuff. Well, as somebody who dealt with an eating disorder, I was not alone in yeah. middle school. I mean, I had friends who like that's what we would talk about together, and it was also something that uh, like we were able to help each other get over. And I had a, a very pivotal moment where I was able to turn it around, but it was sparked by my parents confronting me. And my dad actually said, Carrie, one of my favorite singers died because of this. I don't want you to die. And I remember that in that moment, I was like, I don't want to die. I really don't want to die. And I think like with anorexia, you know, you see all these celebrities or just any eating disorder. You see all these celebrities or you see people who are like living being 85 pounds and you're like, oh, I'm not going to die or I'm not screwing up my body 30 years down the line or anything like that. And I think that, yeah, like the societal pressures of having your exterior be what is valued really can screw you up. And you you saying, you, you phrasing it that way made me think of something and I don't know how relevant this is, but Let's see. Let's see if you guys can make anything out of this. Uh, In Elephant, in Gus Van Zandt's Elephant, there is a trio of women who are uh, bulimic in the movie. Mm. They uh, they're like kind of they're like the very pretty girls in the movie. And there's a couple. I think there's like two or three scenes where he shows them going to the bathroom to vomit after lunch. And basically, um, towards the end of the movie, uh, all three of those girls die because. Uh, essentially their bulimia takes them to the bathroom where they're trapped and that's when the shooter comes in and just shoots them in the stalls oh, man. and so setting up like it, i forgot I, about that yeah so i don't know how much symbolism you want to read into that but just this idea of like um is there there is a lot of symbolism going on in elephant so it wouldn't surprise me this continuing idea of like women are killing themselves God, they're like creating movie. a dead end for themselves that yeah. was such like that was a movie that I watched, and I should I should just watch it again. Because the first time I watched it, I was I had a hard time, and then I finally was like, you know what? I'm gonna like put it on, and then like do three things, <laughs> like while I'm watching it. So it was just kind of like rolling, and like I was watching it, but I was kind of like watching it, but not with this like sole objective of just sitting down. Yeah, and watching that's TV. fair. That that movie for me is really scary because you just don't know what's gonna happen it's or a tough who's movie. gonna get hurt. And this, I, I mentioned this to you before, Carrie, but I, I saw that movie right when it came out, and I don't know why, but I just loved it. Like, I, like, really thought it was the, um, an amazing movie, but not in that way where I was like, 
wow, I'm so shocked by this. This is a masterpiece. I was like, whoa, what a great movie. Like, that weird sort of teenage disconnect where you feel no empathy. But I, I remember, like, telling a bunch of people in high school about it, and it got so popular in my high school that, you know, there's the character that has, like, a bracelet made out of a fork. Uh, oh, everybody yeah. in my high school, all the girls in my high school, like, all, like, the goth girls started wearing fork bracelets because they loved oh, elephants so much. <laughs> what a weird trend to start. Yeah, right. High schoolers will latch on to anything, and that movie sure is nihilistic, and so... Yeah, uh, Jeff and I had a friend in high school who created a whole language based around his love of the fifth element. We won't call his name out, (laughs) but he's a pretty cool guy. Pretty cool guy. (laughs) I learned a little bit of it, but I can't remember the language. That was... That was... Call back! (laughs) (laughs) But yeah. What what should we finish our talk about these crazy movies with? What what do we want what else do we have to say? I mean, we kind of talked about the symbolism that unites them with like suburbs and uh, repression and all these like big topics that are addressed in like different ways through each mm-hmm. of them. But more, most importantly, we haven't really given a lot of credit to how experimental these three movies are, yeah. and they very much come out of avant-garde tradition, and the way in which a lot of people who don't ever find themselves exposed to experimental film don't really appreciate how experimental film really influences everything you see. Like, commercials, the way commercials are edited nowadays, it's because of MTV, and MTV is influenced in a very roundabout way by Stan Brakhage. Like, Stan Brakhage's use of, like, quick cuts and things. And when he was doing that in the 50s, nobody was doing quick cuts. Everything was long, 10-second, florid takes on these giant sets. And now you, like, basically can't escape movies being... Like, every Michael Bay movie is edited like a Stan Brakhage movie, and the irony of that is so horrible. (laughs) But these movies all have such a strong aesthetic sense. And even though they're approaching similar elements, they all do it in very different ways while still kind of finding, like, the horror and the silliness inherent in their topics. Yeah, I think you're right. I I think that a lot of people don't take the chance to watch an experimental film. They'd much rather watch the straight narrative or, you know, documentary and the experimental films are so fun. They're so weird. They're, and like the, the thing that, that I that I really enjoy about experimental movies and stuff like that is that experimental film is that it it's the most low stakes because you come to it with with the expectations that you're a human being who's about to watch an experimental film. Oh yeah. And like if you go if you come into uh, come at it with anything really more than that, you're you're tainting what it is that you're about to watch. Yeah. yeah. Kind of a thing where like you just have to like watch it on its own terms. Be like, this is a thing that I just watched. I can't make heads or tails of it, and it's fine to not get it. Yeah. Which is the other thing. It's like if you don't, if you but don't, it's, not, if you don't it's like kind it, of if, like if you going don't... to an art museum and you see a painting and you're like, man, I don't get what this painting is about, but it's beautiful, right? And the work that went into it, I can really appreciate it. But at some point, you're like, I just don't really get it, but I can still appreciate how beautiful it is or how much. Right. Time and effort was put into it. And that's the same thing with the experimental film. I've watched a lot of bad experimental films. But I've also watched a lot of really great ones. And ones where I'm like, I don't know what that was about, but I loved it. And I think that's kind of what we all decided about possibly in Michigan. We all don't know what it's about, but we all still really appreciated what it was what it was trying to go for. Like kind of what it's... And uh, I'm 
going to steal from Anne Bogart for a second, but uh, the idea of what it's pointing to, like what it, what it is culturally trying to indicate. And I think that that's a big thing that in all these movies, and especially in the thing of experimental film and experimental art in general, is that it's, it's indicating a thing rather than like pointing to something culturally rather than overtly telling you this is what the point is. Yeah. Although Todd Haynes is really great at tripping that line and being like, this is what I'm saying right now. <laughs> <laughs> he's not as subtle. He, his experiment. He's, but he's, he's a little more on the Aaron Sorkin side of, I'm going to tell you what this is about right now. He's the Aaron Sorkin of the avant <laughs> Yeah, he definitely tells you. He would probably be so pissed if he heard Oh, yeah. That. Sorry. Sorry, Dad. Uh, but he, um, yeah, but at the same time, he, he'll give you some sort of explicit, like, I want you to take this away. And while you're paying attention to that, he finds, like, another secret thing to force you to pay attention to. Like, four to. secret things, and he's yeah. like, here are these other things to maybe consider while you're considering that. Yeah, he's good at that. He's really good at that. He's a, he's a fun director. He must be an onion lover. <laughs> All those layers. All them layers. <laughs> I guess I guess we're kind of running out of steam here. Well, oh, and Jeff, since you're a new guest, uh, every time we do this, we end, we just kind of say, like, basic general thoughts on what you thought of everything mm-hmm. and we do a teachable moment and if you want you can do a teachable moment for each movie or just overall about the program tonight who yeah oh yeah, man put me on the spot jeez i gotta like learn i gotta like come up with a moral for all of this well I think that, like, as uh, if you want to take a minute i can talk about uh some carpenter trivia sure i'm gonna i mean like because i think that because i wrote this down because i said it while we were watching uh we were watching superstar and I think the thing from that especially that I kind of took away, and because we were talking about about the popularity of the Carpenter's music and that kind of stuff, and sort of the idea that I, what I wrote down, what I said, and then wrote down because I thought I was really smart because that's <laughs> the douchiest thing. <laughs> um, but I was like, it's it's a thing that's super popular because it really doesn't mean anything. And I think that that's... Yeah. Because it's it, uh, it is absent of, of substance. What did yeah. you say the Carpenters are? The, the Big Bang Theory of... of yeah, it's, I compared the Carpenters to the Big Bang Theory. <laughs> because it was like, it's something that does it because it doesn't mean anything. Like, it's 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 fluff. It's something that makes you feel warm and fuzzy. And I think that, like, all three of these movies were really good at subverting the warm and fuzzy. Oh, being yeah. being like, actually, the warm and fuzzy is... is like made it's on the dark back of, and brooding. It's yeah. made on the back of like child slaves. Yeah. Like think about that. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, as you're listening to this Carpenter song, let's throw a corpse in a pit. Or let's cut away Vietnam. to yeah. X Lax and, so, and, <laughs> and uh, Richard playing the piano. Oh yeah. Or or a whittled down Barbie doll. <laughs> well, actually, thinking about it too, possibly in Michigan has a body being thrown in the garbage. So yeah. there's another link between these movies. Right. Do you want to do your trivia? No, we can we can just skip there. it. Alright, so that's your, your teachable That's what lesson? I think that yeah. I think that that's what I got out of all of this. That's a good teachable lesson. Yeah. Carrie? Everything is nothing. Thank you, irony. <laughs> it's the opposite of everything is awesome. <laughs> If everything is awesome, nothing is awesome. That's what I learned from The Incredibles. God, what an it incredible keeps on movie. <laughs> the best and ran movie, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Oh. 
I think Brad Bird would be upset if you heard that. No, that. The Incredibles is the most Randian movie ever made. Like, even, like, the only reason Atlas Shrugged is more so is because they're so fucking obsessed with getting every single thing that happens in that book on the, in the screen. But The Incredibles is very much about the principles that Anne Rand touches about. But that's a whole other thing that we cannot that's get a, into That's now. another, another <laughs> conversation. <laughs> an hour and 20 minutes of this discussion, I'm not going to lay down my theory of Randy <laughs> about <laughs> that. Why? Why, why not? <laughs> I won't play devil's advocate. <clears throat> I guess for me, I really appreciate when a, a filmmaker is willing to try something that might not work. And I think Todd Haynes is one of those directors who who definitely tries things that might not work. See, I'm not there for a reference. I'm not there is a great movie. It has really beautiful moments, and there's a lot of things that work really well. But there's also a lot, there's a few plot lines in that movie that just don't work. Like, there's a few people in that movie who played Bob Dylan who probably shouldn't have played Bob Dylan. Richard Gere. Yeah, Richard Gere's whole plot line is like, ugh. The most confusing, and, surreal nonsense. And it, is Oh, it, like the scene where the black child Bob Dylan jumps off the train and gets swallowed by a whale? <laughs> like, <laughs> man, really taking a jump there. Right. Like, also, Kate Blanchett was a balloon for a second at the end of yeah. the movie, too. Yeah. Yeah, there's just some things that don't work. And But, again, he's trying something. He's not, he's not doing it to make other people happy. He's doing it to make a point or or express how he feels about the subject matter. Now, do we get it all the time? No. Nope. Do we still think it's cool? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I, th- I appreciate it. Again, it kind of goes back to my point about seeing a piece of art and not necessarily understanding what it means or what it's all about, but being appreciate- appreciative of the effort and the work behind it. And... I think that that goes a lot into my uh, film appreciation and how I approach film is, can I see the effort? Do I appreciate the effort? Is it worthwhile even if I didn't really like it? God, that was long and rambling. No, but I know what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think that that's, that's kind of how I feel about our triptych. What is it? Triptych of... Triptych of horror? Is triptych of said? craziness? Silly? Not silliness. Not silliness. No. We're not well, all in all in disagreement about what's silly. Yeah, what's what was the silliest? I don't know. I think Todd Haynes is always just a really we'll like, a whimsical it. director. What oh. a good word. Yeah, whimsical. <laughs> triptych of terror. There's, yeah, you have, um, do we say it on the recording? Or we did. Yeah, we that did. was one of the first things you said, which is why. We so we'll edit this awesome. part out. Cool. This doesn't exist anymore. All right. La, 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 la. Okay, well, I guess my teachable lesson, for me, because all of these movies are so horrifying, especially Superstar, I think each of these movies, in their own different ways, really show an important lesson on the aesthetics of horror and how strange elements, it doesn't necessarily have to be about the content being scary it's all about how it's presented and a lot of horror movies nowadays especially like the cheap crappy ones that studios tend to churn out or the found uh, footage ones found footage ones are very much about like well it's just what's happening and at the most they try to do aesthetically is they make it dark and they kind of 
make it so you're like, I know someone's going to die, so it's just a matter of when. They, they rely very much on jump scares and, like, the, the staggering of expectations. But these movies... Uh, especially uh, Superstar being about anorexia. He was once being about repression and kind of like learning to not trust authority. And possibly in Michigan, this, uh, well, I guess a cannibal trying to eat you is scary. <laughs> no matter what. <laughs> but like it's in a mall and there's a lot of things about the, the where it's set that shouldn't be scary. But um, Superstar, and he was once especially, do a lot with lighting and there's just like a darkness that kind of overwhelms the image. So even when you're seeing Karen Carpenter perform, there's this just her face is in shadow. She's being overwhelmed. And the music in, in The Superstar is very much, well, the Car Carpenter's music is beautiful. The score of the movie heavily uses shepherd's tones, which are these infinite pieces of sound that just seem to escalate eternally without going anywhere. And so it just kind of like, if you listen to it too long, it feels like you're just going insane. And the way that they use that to, like, make food terrifying, to put you in the point of view of an anorexic. And then how he was once kind of uses its dream sequences to do this, like, what you kind of said was the whole point of the dream. They do it in this way where it's not just like, oh, that's the point I'm supposed to take away from it. It's this estranging scary world where even though there's like a bear taking a girl's ear and the dad giving it back it it's just so alienating and unlike what you see uh, what you see in real life that it just makes you uncomfortable mm -hmm. and possibly in michigan is just weird and confounding and uh, like i said feels like a snuff film and that dirty grimy quality changes like seeing a mall in real life is nothing like seeing a mall in possibly in michigan and so I guess again, like I'm rambling now, but kind of uh, like seeing them all in the Ariel Pink music video. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so yeah, there's uh, watching these movies. If you try to think of them as horror movies, try to get into the way in which they make normal things scary. I think you can learn a lot about. <coughs> Damn, you can learn a lot about good techniques to use um, to make movies actually scary instead of just like bullshit that would <laughs> just waste everybody's time. <laughs> That's yeah, there's yeah. a lot of like editing in context. I yeah, think is the is the cool thing that and and do. sound. Sound, yeah, great sound design, even for low budget movies that we essentially watch bootleg copies all of this. The aesthetics and sound still come through, even though we didn't watch like a Blu-ray quality, even on a reduced quality. And actually, I think that that's it's kind of one of those like it improves the quality of it. Yeah, it's yeah, so it makes intrinsic. it more scary. What is makes it creepy is so intrinsic to the movie that it can only be helped by adding that layer of crime it's, to it's it. It's like watching the, the video in the ring. Because yeah. it's on a VHS, it's scarier. Yeah. Well, it adds to, yeah, yeah. it adds to, like, the authenticity of the... The, the primitiveness. Well, yeah. The fact that it is bootleg, the fact that a lot of these, and, like, especially Superstar, are, like, these kind of sub extremely subversive and extremely, like, things that have flown under the radar of regular society. Do you think Todd Haynes sits in his house on the couch and watches Superstar and sings along and, and like He's cries not Kanye while, West. Cries like, while like drinking, <laughs> drinking a glass of wine. <laughs> like, a, like a way to rip off the These beats are dope. <laughs> <laughs> 
I think that's what the what best Tad says, but best but he says these shots are dope. <laughs> these the, yeah, these shots are dope. <laughs> that close up on that Barbie hand was so good. <laughs> I love that tambourine shot. <laughs> are you so in your own house that. watching your own movie, buffing your own head? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah. So if you take nothing else from these movies, we liked them. And you should, you should watch them, too. Uh, you can easily watch them on the YouTube. All of them are on the YouTubes. All on the internet. Well, possibly Michigan's on Vimeo, but the other two, yes. Internet on YouTube. Dot Geocities. Backslash AOL. <laughs> uh, backslash AOL? Backslash AOL. Uh, this has been The Secret Cinema. Uh, I'm Paolo. <laughs> I'm Carrie. And I am Jeff. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for coming, Jeff. Thanks, Absolutely. Jeff. It was great to do this, you guys. Thanks for coming. And uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. The Secret Cinema is produced and edited by Paolo Corona. All theme songs were performed and recorded by Ricardo Ortiz. Any additional music or samples come from the film covered on this week's episode. All logos and artwork created by Carrie Chafin. You can follow Carrie on Instagram at Carrie Saw This and see more of her artwork at www.carriechafee.com. You can watch Paolo's short films at vimeo.com slash paolocarone or read more of his ramblings about film at letterbox.com slash The Secret Cinema is a commentary and criticism podcast, and its use of film dialogue and film music for illustrative purposes falls under the fair use provisions of U.S. copyright law. Thanks again for listening.